The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in November 2006. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome John Doyle, who is a new name on Broadway within the last year, but certainly not a new name when it comes to theatre. John, welcome. Hi. You've been involved in theatre in in your native Great Britain for a long, long time. You've been artistic director of four different prestigious regional theatres. You have done scores of shows, more than 200 shows by your own estimate in the UK and elsewhere, but two shows on Broadway, Sweeney Todd, for which you won the Tony last year as best director and currently running on Broadway Company, The Revival, and... To use the word controversial is maybe not completely accurate, but there was some degree of discussion, some degree of of angst before people saw Sweeney Todd that this guy, this Doyle fellow from Great Britain has come over, has eliminated the orchestra, has given instruments to the ten actors on stage, had them play instruments and sing and dance and all that, and you won a Tony for it, and you won a Drama Desk Award and an Outer Critics Circle Award, so something must have worked right. This is a technique you've been using for some time in Great Britain, isn't it? It is. It is indeed. And it came out of financial necessity, really. I was was, uh, artistic director of the Everyman Theatre in Liverpool, which is kind of quite a cutting-edge theatre, very political theatre, mm-hmm. um, where they've done a lot of new work. And I decided to do a piece of musical theatre there, uh, Condide, the Bernstein Condide. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I frankly couldn't afford the orchestra and the cast at the same time. So we, we put them together. And it uh, it was a, a pretty successful exercise. But in those days, people, uh, they sat, you know, and they played the music at a music stand, and mm-hmm. then they got up and acted. And it would be unfair to say that I was the first director in my country to think of such a thing, you know. Um, people like Bob, a guy called Bob Carlton wrote, uh, did a, a show called Return to the Forbidden Planet. And there was also Buddy in the West End, which was very successful, the Buddy Holly story, mm-hmm. um, both using actors who played instruments. And I knew some of those actors and some of those directors, and I thought, well, there must be a way that those same techniques could be taken into the more classic musical theatre form. So that's where the journey started almost 15 years ago now uh, and has gone on through theatres that I've run as artistic director and then at the Watermill Theatre Newbury where I was associate director using and developing the same stuff to the point that um, Sweeney Todd went into the West End to a tiny small theatre Stephen Sondheim came and saw it, and the rest is fairly recent history, as you've just rightly acknowledged. Well, to take a Leonard Bernstein work like Candide and eliminate the orchestra, what what did what happened then? Did people start to scream, how can you do this? Uh, well, of course, there's audacity wrapped up in it all. I mean, uh-huh. I'm quite prepared uh-huh. to admit that. and But not for any particular... I mean, you know, I don't set out to be audacious with it and don't set out to be in any way uh, revolutionary with it or anything like that. It's all been... The choices have been pragmatic uh, in terms of cost. Uh, what has happened is that some kind of... I, I find the term art form rather pretentious, but some sort of art form has grown out of it. Um, and the, it's not obviously aiming to eliminate the orchestral sound. It's aiming to use the instrument in a more dramatic form is what it ends up doing. That means that you have to carry those instruments around all night as performers. It requires a very flexible kind of actor to be able to do it. But now with both Sweeney Todd and company on Broadway, I don't Mm -hmm. imagine the cost was the the driving factor in this case, was it? No. Uh, Although it was when I did it, first of all, at the Watermill Theatre in Newbury, which were the stages like 14 feet by 14 feet. So, you know, there's no no place for an orchestra. Uh, That's exactly what it was there. Then Steve Sondheim saw it enjoyed what he'd seen 
uh, encouraged it to come here to Broadway. Um, and of course, we could have had, they could have said, well, now you can put an orchestra in the pit, but that would have denied the very reason for doing it in the first place. Uh, not to say to you that it wasn't pretty scary when we when they first suggested that it would come to Broadway. On two points. One, I never thought it would happen because it's the sort of dream that you don't believe will come true. And I thought, oh my goodness, you know, what are people going to make of this? Um, I jokingly for years in, in, in Britain taught, been, been quoted for saying, you know, my aim was to take the Broadway out of the Broadway musical because, you know, I was working in environments and in theatres where the show was there almost in what you would consider to be non-for-profit houses uh, for four or six-week runs, and that was it. There was no intention with Sweeney Todd of it ever living beyond a six-week run. Mm. Um, I certainly didn't think uh, anybody of any import would see it. Well, any any audience is important, but you know what I'm saying about it. Well, you didn't expect Sondheim to come see it. That's really what I meant, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I was that was pretty scary because of what I do in terms of the, um, the contractual way in which these pieces of musical theatre are protected throughout the world, what I do breaks those rules and breaks those laws in a sense. Um, and so, you know, it's not, it was never meant to be about we want to get rid of an orchestra. It grew after not being able to afford to have one. Then it came into how can you use that theatrical style to really extend the audience's uh, disbelief. You know, I mean, you don't often sit uh, with a drink in one hand and a double bass between your legs. You know, it doesn't happen very much in real life. And so it, it kind of asks the audience to take a journey that goes beyond their cons- their preconception of what real life is um, and I suppose you could say it takes you to a slightly more abstract or ab- an abstraction of reality uh, and that's that's what I'm interested in more than anything really and, and what it does in terms of the relationship between the actor and the audience is what interests me. Well on a practical level since you mentioned the actors as a director since you are now not only looking for people who can act and sing but they have to play instruments does this narrow the field, let's talk first working in England, of the performers who are available to you in terms of doing this work? Does it restrict your options? Yeah, it it, it did, I think it's fair to say. It inevitably restrict is often looked upon as a negative. I think it can be quite a positive thing, you know, the fact that you have you are looking for a particular set of skills to storytell with would not really be any different to if you were doing a dance piece, you know, that you were looking for a particular set of talents. Now, when I first did Candide all that time ago, I could truly only find 10 or 12 people who could even even approach being able to play that score. Um, Because we did the whole, you know, we did that famous overture with a reduction of 12 and so on. Um, But by the time it has come down to doing things like Sweeney Todd in the UK, well, since I started developing the technique, there is now a theatre school, Rose Bruford College, which has a three-year training program to teach people how to do it, of which they've made me a fellow of the school. So it's now becoming a recognised, legitimate way of making theatre happen in Britain. So certainly now, if I put out a casting call to do a musical in my own country, I can get anywhere between 500 and 1,000 applications, most of whom are, they may not be appropriate for the roles, but they're certainly appropriate within the skills base that's required. And was there a different experience when you came over here Mm -hmm. first to cast Sweeney and then to cast Company? Was it a different... Well, 
You know, I said to the producers when we came here to cast Sweeney, I said, look, for goodness sake, don't announce that you're doing this show until we know whether we can find a cast, because I didn't know for a moment if the skills would be, uh, not so much be around, but be whether the act, whether actors could see themselves as doing that kind of work. And we certainly didn't know that Patti Lapone had played tuba in her high school marching Absolutely, band. Absolutely, or, or very, ex- you know, g- going along the line of that cast, very experienced Broadway pr- actors like Mark Jacoby, who probably hadn't taken his trumpet out since he was in high school band. But uh, with time, you know, those people are able, you can, you can sense very quickly whether somebody is musical enough on the instrument to be able to fulfill the, the requirements. Um, Actually, you know, with something like Sweeney Todd, it wasn't such a difficult journey to find them all. I mean, I'm not saying it's easy to find people like Alex Gimignani, uh, because he's a marvellous, marvellous piano player. So, you know, finding, and you need a strong pianist at the root of that score. So, uh, yeah, it wasn't easy, but there were, we saw a lot of people. Now, by the time it came to doing Company, of course, the cast of Company probably had all seen Sweeney Todd by then. Mm They were only they were auditioned only to do the piece in Cincinnati. We didn't think it would be going anywhere beyond Cincinnati at that point in time. Um, and we saw, you know, we saw very good people, and we saw a lot of good people before we selected. So I'm assuming that there must be actors all over New York practicing their cello or something, <laughs> because certainly I, I see more and more people now. I think there's also something to be said for the fact that you do have a marching band, high school band tradition, which we don't have in the UK. So it is probable that more people of a certain age, anyway, at least went through the business of learning an instrument at school. Uh, whether that can, I don't know how it is in this country. In my country, one of the things that is being cut back from the education curriculum is learning any art skill at, at school. And that's a great shame. So, you know, I hope that will be addressed in time. Clearly, there has to be some relationship between the instrument that the character plays mm-hmm. and their character itself. Tell us, let's talk about company. How do you develop the idea of what the instrumentation might be for a particular character? Or is it you find people who are multifaceted? Just just take sure. us through that it's, process. It's a little of everything. I mean, you do start off by saying to your orchestrator, okay, what do we need? It's obvious that you're going to need probably two piano players to get you through the evening to start off with. And maybe it's quite nice if those two piano players play a husband and wife in the play so that at some point they could both sit at the same piano and play together as they do in Side by Side in this particular show. That might be quite fun. You'd need a double bass usually because you need the the bass route to the orchestra. And if you haven't got the ability to have a double bass, then you have to have a cello, which can take the double bass line. And if you can't have that, you have an instrument like a tuba, which can take the same bass notes. So you start to look around the possibilities of all of that. And then inevitably you think, okay, well, which character makes you think most like a violin? Or which character would you associate with the flute? Or Harry, this slightly boorish husband of Sarah, he seems a bit of a trumpeter to me. And so you do develop it around that. But, you know, some of it is done on the rehearsal room floor where you think, ah, OK, well, they're playing those two instruments. That's how the, that couple happened to be. Let's make a language with those two instruments out of the orchestration. Um, that's certainly more the case in company than was it the case in Sweeney Todd. In Sweeney, 
because they were all locked in the same whatever that place was, lunatic asylum or hospital well, or whatever you tell it was. Us. Well, you should I don't know. <laughs> if I do know any, I know it's a, what is in my head. I'll tell you in a moment. But uh, what, you know, because they were all locked in and, and had to make music for each other, it was slightly less character driven the music than than it is. I think in company, the the choices in company have been more rooted around the specific characters. Well, particularly with Sweeney, because that was your first. Uh, Broadway show, mm-hmm. the first Broadway effort, and also with company, a lot of attention was paid paid in the press to the fact that the actors were playing the instruments mm-hmm. and there was no orchestra. We've spent 15 minutes talking about talking it here about today. Let's move beyond that mm-hmm. because in the show itself, you have to move beyond that. Yeah. And the audience in the first five or ten minutes gets it or they don't. But, Absolutely. Um, what else did you look for in terms of casting the actors and in, in staging it, other than them playing the instruments? What, what were you looking for, both in the case of Sweeney, but also company? Okay. You have to create a world for First of all, where nobody leaves the stage. That's the first thing you have to do because, of course, they all need to be on all the time because they have to accompany each other. So I wanted a world, uh, whatever that world would be in either case, where they could all be trapped in the story. I mean, it's a little bit like uh, Into the Woods in that sense. You know, we're all trapped in the same story. In the case of Sweeney... I wanted them to be trapped in Tobias's head. Uh, trapped, which is why he started the story, tied up, the boy who's driven mad by the story, and almost looking at the story retrospectively, and then re-tied up to tell it again tomorrow. Okay? It's the perpetual angst or tra- entrapment of that. Mm-hmm. In something like Company, uh, I wanted them all to be clearly the, the demons in Bobby's head, the pictures on his walls, as he says at one point, photographs on the walls, one of the lyrics, um, the, the people who he needs to get away from if he's ever going to grow, the people whom he, whose calls he finally has to stop answering uh, in order that he can have some freedom. Uh, not that they're not people who love him and people that he loves. They're his support mechanism. Maybe they're too much of his support mechanism. So I wanted people who were able to, first of all, embrace the idea that they would be generous enough to take the front moment, if you like. You know, I think I think of two instances. Let's go to Sweeney, uh, somebody like Paddy Lapone, uh, a major Broadway star, but having the generosity to be able to sit in the corner in the dark and play the orchestra bells or the triangle. I think of Barbara Walsh as Joanne, who is not in, uh, an instrumentalist in the same way as the others are, but takes the same function as Paddy and has to wait all night to do that song, but has to do that um, uh, Ladies Who Lunch song, but has to inform the rest of the evening with music. So you need that quality in the performer. Then I wanted people who... Um, now, this is to do with my own taste in what acting is, right? People who would approach the musical, not uh, not in the way that a musical theatre performer would normally approach a musical, but would explore it almost like a play with songs, uh, which I think is a slightly different context. It's a more naturalistic way of approaching dialogue, if you like. Um, and then, finally, because company is... The look of company is contemporary, even though the writing is from 1970. Uh, I wanted people who you felt that you could meet at a cocktail party or in Orso or wherever it is that you happen to go in New York that makes you feel that you are with very stylish people. So for both shows, both Sweeney Todd and company, did that then necessitate many changes in the book and the staging and in 
the whole structure of the show? Um, in the case of Sweeney Todd, there were changes uh, in that uh, Steve Sondheim himself helped to make some of those changes, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in the second act. There was almost nothing changed in the first act other than a couple of cuts, which were traditional cuts. In the second act, he actually wanted to rework some of the material himself, mm-hmm. and we did that reworking together to try to make a very complicated story more clear in what was already a complex theatrical conceit if you like. Mm -hmm. In the case of Company uh, interestingly I I was standing under under the marquee the other evening and heard a gentleman saying to his friend how dare he, meaning me uh, how dare he change the book so much in order to fit his concept. Well actually I think two words have been changed in George Firth's book. Nothing has otherwise been changed. Nothing is cut. And the two words that were changed, I can't even remember what they were now, were changes that both Steve and George wanted and have always wanted to make. Uh, So actually nothing's been touched at all. Other than the age of Robert, who was 30 in the original production and 40 in the 95 revival. Now he's in between. He's 35. In fact, in the printed text, he's 35. Really? Mm -hmm. But in the original, wasn't he 30? I'm not sure. I think he could have been, uh-huh. and then I think they did use 40 at one point, but they felt that 40 was too important a birthday, mm-hmm. you know? The big 4 The, the decade <laughs> birthdays, because mm-hmm. now 50 is 40, isn't it, so they tell me. <laughs> but uh, I, I think they wanted it to be something that was halfway through the allotted span. But no, we use precisely what is on the, on the, on the printed page. Uh-huh. As you've been pursuing this particular style of exploring musical theater, I have to ask... Have you looked at shows that you don't think lend themselves to this Mm -hmm. style? Or indeed, have you ever done a show that ultimately, once into it, you found didn't work? I think there are definitely shows that don't work, would not work for it. I mean, I really, it would be rather foolhardy to try West Side Story. Because West Side Story is a show that is about people who communicate through dance. And I think that would be the wrong thing to try to do. Uh, you could argue that there were dance, great dance moments in company originally when Michael Bennett did the original staging, but not all the way through the show. You know, it's not a show where the expression is a dance expression. Um, in terms of shows that I think haven't worked, I did Pal Joey this way, and I felt that didn't work, but then I have a feeling that's because that second act of that show, the book of that the second act is tricky to work anyway. The shows that work best for me, I think Fiddler on the Roof, which I did with ten people doing this, that worked because music was indigenous to the language of the story and to the culture. Uh, so that type of piece works very well. I've done two Gilbert and Sullivan adaptations, taking them into jazz and uh, one into a jazz world and one into a um, big band world. And they both really worked because of the the musical rhythms of the piece. They worked very well. And they're already uh, conceited enough, if you like. You know, they're already stylized enough to work. Um, Into the Woods definitely worked because it's already a, a, a slightly mad world that it's happening in. I'm trying to think through of them all. If there's one that I would look back and say to you now, yes, that really, really, really didn't. And I, I don't think there has been one. There have been some in which we've struggled more. I've struggled more than others to find um, the uh, to to make sure that the that the. Uh, I use the word conceit rather than concept. I think the concept is something else, you know. Uh, the concept of company, for example, to me, is the 
the sterility, the uh, the removal of the world, as opposed to the playing of instruments. The playing of instruments is a means to an end, if you like, in the story to, of for a group of fourteen storytellers. But I don't I don't think there was ever one of of the what now twenty shows probably I've done. I don't think there's one that stands out as absolutely not working. It is obvious, I think, that things like cabaret is going to work very well because it's in a club and people are playing instruments in a club, so that's that's going to work better than than uh, than some which may be even more even more naturalistic in terms of the world that they live in. With the success that's greeted you here in the U.S. and certainly mm-hmm. the introduction of Sweeney and now Company. Are you concerned at all that people are only going to look to you as this director who does this style? And though, because I've not had the opportunity to see, say, your opera work, are you still able to get out of doing work in this style? Sure. I mean, I'm going to do Mahagoni, the Courtval piece in, in Los Angeles, at Los Angeles Opera in, in January with Audra McDonald and Paddy Lapone. Of course they're not going to be going around playing instruments. I'm doing Lucia de Lammermoor for Scottish Opera in May. She's certainly not going to do those cadenzas on the flute. It would be ridiculous, you know. But, you know, it's... And I, and I am being asked to do more straight plays, which is something I very much want to do. Well, I was curious about the Amadeus sure. as well. Well, Amadeus, of course, we did with instruments. They, pl- yeah. they all played the Mozart, yeah, and it was beautiful. It really was beautiful. Uh, the, uh, the only person who couldn't play was Salieri, um, and that was a choice, you know. Huh. So it was just so really... even though he was, in fact, a composer... Yes. Well, t- was, tell us about it, that. Really, because I wanted to say that he was surrounded by Mozart's extraordinary music, which made him, in himself, impotent and mad in terms of his ability to be an artist, which is, of course, what the story of the piece is about. So that worked very well. I, li- I like to use it. I find the style very freeing. It, you know, yeah, I, I, I read those things online that say that I'm a one-trick pony. I could care less. You know, I am who I am, and there's nothing I can do about that. And this is how I express myself. I come from the Highlands of Scotland, where I'm used to a Cayley tradition. I'm used to people sitting in the front room making music. I was brought up with a piano in the room. You know, I, I, it's where I, it's what I do. And why, why deny yourself if you... <laughs> If any artist wants success, and it bring success brings negatives as well as positives with it, you know, I'd already had success. I, I never stopped working. That to me is success, you know. Uh, to get a Tony Award is a treat, <laughs> you know. It's the it's the cherry on the sundae. Uh, but I I was already doing what I do, and and now just because it's been maybe more successful on a commercial platform than I ever thought it would be. Um, I'm not going to stop doing it for that reason. Uh, I will do stories that I want to tell, and I will tell them the, the, in the, the appropriate way at the time. What I won't do is I won't go... I won't use this technique only to make cheap theatre, right? I will go into under-resourced situations, which is where I love to create. Uh, I love... I really enjoy regional theatre and I really enjoy the business of being told this is all you have, then I can use my imagination. Um, And I will continue to search for those opportunities, always, always, always. If they then bring um, the opportunity to to take that work onto Broadway or into the West End, isn't that great? I mean, of course, that's lovely for me, it's lovely for the cast, it's lovely for everything. But... uh, the, or if I could find Broadway opportunities where I could say, look, don't don't expect it to have um, an enormous visual feast or or don't give me 
such a lot of money that I don't know what to do with it. Let me give me people, you know, give me people to story tell with, and maybe there is something in that, in the in, in the human relationship between that and an audience, that is precious. I think you know, is special, um, and I think one of the reasons that Sweeney worked. Forget the instruments, forget the glorious Paddy and Michael and Mano and their fantastic performances and Steve's incredible music. One of the reasons I think it worked was the connection between the audience and and the action itself, and the direct, honest approach of saying, "We know you're there." And you know we're here. Well, I have to ask you, because John was talking earlier about the Sweeney and, and how people look at it. The, the, the choice of the actors playing the instruments aside, mm-hmm. what struck me most when I saw it originally in the West End was that it was the first time I'd Sweeney t- seen Sweeney Todd in the, the 20 years. It's, it's been a, more than 20 years it's been around that I wasn't looking at some version of Hal Prince's production. And I wondered, first of all, had you seen that production at any time and how you went about banishing those ghosts? I had seen that production in the West End, at Drury Lane. I had done my own watered-down production of, you know, in a regional repertory theatre with a cast of, I don't know, 18 and a band of 8 or 10. I'd done one years ago. Um, And I was asked by Jill Fraser, who was the artistic director of the Watermill, where I have originated quite a number of these pieces of work, to do a piece of work for her. Uh, at a time of year where I didn't want to go there. It was January, it was cold, and I didn't want to do the job. And it's a theatre where you don't get where you get paid almost no money, and you all have to stay in this accommodation together, and it's glorious and terrible all at the same time, and there's never any budget. And I was, I'd been working a lot, and I needed the time off, and the theatre needed to make some money. They were going through hard times, and she sat me down and said, John, I need you to come and do something. I said, I don't want to do anything. She said, I want you to come and do Sweeney Todd. And I said, oh my goodness, it's the last thing in the world I want to do. I've done it before. She please think about it. And I thought about it and I thought, okay, well, she needs it. Uh, that was really important to me. Uh, and uh, she, the theatre needed it and I had loyalty to the audience and I thought, the way I can survive this is by designing it myself as well. Actually going away and thinking about a, com- a total concept, which I don't y- usually do my own design work, but to do a, a total relook. I knew that the budget was, I think it was about 5,000 or 8,000 pounds. So in dollars, what's that? 10 to 15,000 dollars. I knew it was a tiny amount of money. Um, I went out myself and found the costumes in, in clothing warehouses. I went out myself and found all the props for that back wall, which I continued to do on Broadway. I, did the, I repeated exactly the same journey on Broadway because I was insistent that I had, it had to be a very hands-on experience from my viewpoint. Um, and so... And so that's why I approached it the way I did and, and found this way of... I, I then went and, and found a, um, the original operating theatre at Guy's Hospital in London where they have got buckets at the, cor- the four corners of a black table in the middle of the room, where, white enamel buckets where they collected the blood when the mm. amputations were being done. Mm. So, and and the, East, the barbers of the East End were the amputations at the people who went and did the amputations before anaesthetic. And that really interested me, and that's where the imagery came from. Um, and and so I went into the rehearsal room not knowing how I was going to solve the problems of the piece, other than I had no money and I had very little to do it with. Um, you know, of all the things, of all the wonderful, wonderful things that happened in the last two years about Sweeney, there have been great gifts and marvellous opportunities. One of the very special things was a letter that I received from Hal Prince, which said... 
uh, that this was probably the first time he'd ever seen it and it not be a copy of his production and he was so pleased about that and I thought that was the most generous action and it made me feel free do you know it made me mm. feel free and and that links to the whole thing about what we think revival is uh, you know is revival uh, a copy of an original uh, or is it is it something that you do for the audience that you're doing it for now, for the artists who are making the story happen? I happen to think it should be the second, in the same way that you would revive Shakespeare differently all the time and you would revive Ibsen differently all the time. Uh, I, I would want to put certainly Mr. Sondheim's work in, this, in the category of those other names. And I think it's the same with anybody. If you want to tell a story anew, you have to tell it for the time you live in. It doesn't mean to say it has to be dressed in the time that we live in. It doesn't mean to say that it has to, you know, have, say to us, look, get it, this is you, but to have a connection that makes it, that gives it a relevance. Well, we've been talking about your work for some time. We keep coming back to Sweeney. We keep talking, coming back to how you've taken the mm -hmm. orchestra away and given the instruments to the actors. Mm -hmm. Why don't we play a song from Sweeney, Todd, and I'll let you choose. What, what song from Sweeney do you think is most representative of your style and... and Okay, well, I mean, there are so many of them, and they're all so great. But if there was my Desert Island song would would <laughs> be uh, the Joanna in Act Two of Sweeney Todd. I think it represented it not only musically but visually. The much talked about white little baby's coffin, the whole image of a man grieving for his child, while singing some of the most beautiful music ever written for the American Musical Theatre. Joanna from Sweeney Todd. John Doyle, our guest today on Diamond Stage Center, the director of Sweeney Todd and Company here on Broadway. John, when you select something to do, what do you look for? Putting aside how you're going to execute it, whether you're going to have the actors play the instruments or not, how you're going to stage it, putting that aside, what's, what do you really look for when you're selecting what to do? I think I look for something where that has um, the potential for a darker side, hmm. the potential for a true expression of what humanity is something that gives me the opportunity to look at all our madness and sadness and badness at the same time as potentially being very funny or ironic or whatever it is but that has inside it a depth or a, a connection uh, with with our humanity uh, something that something like for example company I was attracted I mean I was attracted because I was offered a job you know that's <laughs> the first thing um, and uh, I'd I was offered the job before Sweeney Todd came to Broadway. So when I took the job to go to Cincinnati, I didn't know Sweeney was going to happen here. Uh, I was thrilled to be going to Cincinnati. And I, he asked, Ed Stern, the director there, asked me if I would consider doing Sweeney there. I said, no, I really don't want to do Sweeney Todd again unless it comes to Broadway. Um, but which was being talked about. And then he said, well, what about another Sondheim score? And then I thought about it. And I thought, well, the one that I fell in love with, first of all, was company. It's perhaps a little more obvious to do something like a little night music this way. And then Steve Sondheim and I talked about it, and we both thought company, because of the character-led nature of the storytelling, would be interesting. And because it is almost not a plot. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's a psychological examination of somebody, in a sense. It's about growth. And that's really what interests me in it. You know, I find the piece oddly hopeful. I mean, you know, and, and I think... Because I could see that here we are in a world of 
all this communication that's around us. So much of it, we are inundated with it. And yet we don't communicate most of the time. You know, we find it harder and harder, it seems to me, to, to communicate, even though we have, goodness knows how many cell phones and Blackberries in our bags. And, and a story about a man who needed to break through something to become unstuck uh, interested me or to make himself vulnerable enough to be unstuck. Now, why did it interest me? Because I can be that man. You know, I have been that man. I'm old enough to have been Bobby. Maybe we'll be Bobby again. Um, and that's the sort of story I like, something that I think, ah, okay, I can put something of myself into this. Because if I can't address myself in it, uh, how can I ever help an artist, an actor, to address themselves in it? And how can I... And, and I, have to, I feel it's important that I tell stories that I don't stand in the way of. Um, I'm not interested in my own ego becoming more important than the story. The story is the important thing to me. Even if I don't tell it well, I will try to tell it well. Um, so it has to be something that I, I feel strongly enough about to think that it is that there is something there that I want to say rather than it become a glossy cover-up in any way at all. You talk about would be the artistic directors or producers calling you, asking you to do a show. Mm-hmm. Basically, the phone rings and someone says, I want you to do a show. Do you wait for the phone to ring or do you go aggressively after some projects that you really want to do? Uh, you know, neither. Um, okay, for all those years when I ran theatres, I programmed the theatre myself. Uh, I would direct 12 shows a year. You know, I knew how to churn them out. And you learn a lot of craft that way. Uh, and I couldn't do this kind of work if I didn't have that craft. For all those you know, walk in through the French windows and cross down left shows. I, I needed to do those to learn what not to do, you know? Mm-hmm. To to break some rules, you need to, to, to do that. But I, I, I now, of course, I'm being asked to do a greater variety of materials coming to me because of Sweeney, because of the Tony. Um, and that's a very, very privileged place to be. Now, what I'm having to do is try to create my life in such a way that I give myself time between those projects because otherwise I'm just going to be churning out 12 a year again Mm -hmm. and I don't want to be in that place anymore and I'm not that age of my life anymore to want to do that so the the, the play has to be important to me now that doesn't mean to say I'm not prepared to have to do pieces that are just nothing but a good laugh you know I really am but because uh, I, I don't want it to sound like some sort of worthy, you know, right on sort of experience. I, I do want to do things that are fun as well. But, yeah, I get I'm in a place where I can select. But, you know, really, the bottom line for me is the people that I do it with. Uh, if, when I have meetings with things, if I like the person that I'm meeting, I'll go and do the job. And I will do it. Pro- I'll probably get told off by my agents for doing something that isn't going to earn them and me enough money. The reality is that won't stop me. Uh, you know, I've done this long enough. I know that the important thing is to have the interpersonal connection with the people you work with. But when you or your agent hear wind of something being talked about, do you then you yourself try to get it, or no. do you just wait for you don't you don't go after something? Uh, not really, no. Mm. Maybe that's lazy of me, and maybe <laughs> I'm just not proactive enough, and maybe I've always worked, so it's nice for me to keep working. Uh-huh. It's not meant to be a soft option, though. It's it's I, I, I certainly I don't chase work. I chase the possibility of enjoying meeting people that can bring other opportunities. But I don't know what those opportunities are going to be. And I'm not sure how much we can plan it anyway. You know, I think there's fate wrapped up in in all of it. It was fate that people wrote to Steve Sondheim and said, you've got to see this show. I didn't write to him. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. I'd have been too uh-huh. scared. Uh, so I didn't write to him. People wrote and said to his friends, wrote and said, I think you need to see this, Steve. And of course, being the artist he is, he followed that through. Well, I had no control over all of that. And, and as I said 
when I won the Tony, you know, the important thing for me has to has been to hang on in there and keep doing your work and keep keep telling your work and telling your story the best way you can. That's why I'm not going to change direction now, because this is how I do what I do and this is how I express myself. And if this is all that happens, that's enough, you know? Well, you mentioned Sondheim being very in, involved in both Sweeney Todd mm-hmm. and, and company. What about the other shows you've done in this actor's play instrument style? Have Sheldon Harnick and Jerry Bach, for instance, been involved in Fiddler on the Roof? Have the other composers gotten involved? No. Uh, now, I think that is starting to change. Peter Schaffer, not that he's a composer, but he was very involved in, in the Amadeus that I did in London recently. So that was nice and encouraging and really lovely. And, you know, how, priv- how privileged am I to be working with Peter Schaffer and Stephen Sondheim? My goodness me. Interestingly, uh, Joseph Stein, who wrote the book for, for uh, Fiddler, he saw Sweeney and he said to me, um, had I ever thought of doing something like Fiddler this way? And I said, well, in fact, I have done it. And I told him how I'd done it. And he said, well, why didn't I know about it? And I said, well, actually, y- your, your representatives in the UK said I was breaking the law such a lot that I, you want to know about this happening. <laughs> <laughs> okay. so, you know, so we're kind of breaking through bit uh, by bit. Uh, and, and that's changed now. Well, you, the rules you, have changed. You, you've been discovered. And I suppose you could say that, yes. John, before we wrap... Um, you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that you look for the depth and in some cases even the darkness in a show. So I'm very curious about one of your more recent productions, namely Mac and Mabel, mm-hmm. which is a show that fairly famously has very dark undertones mm-hmm. merged with the eternally sunny music of um, of, Jerry Herman. of Jerry Herman. And so I'm wondering how that worked for you, reconciling those two elements? Uh, it, was n- it was very tricky uh, because I worked on the piece for about two years and it's very, very hard. If you do a piece of work like Mac and Mabel, the, I mean, I've always loved the score. You know, how many people have sat and said, great score, shame about the book, you know? People who've never even seen Mac and Mabel say that. And I... I Yeah, there are possibly structural issues. I worked a lot on the structure and on the book, and I involved uh, Jerry in that very much. Uh, And um, I I, I suppose I did have to convince him that it was all right that Mabel Norman died at the end and that it was all right in 2006 that the audience could accept that. Uh, and that, uh, th- and that actually, that could be positive. That could be that could be a happy ending in itself. If somebody's going through pain and they're let go, there's something incredibly constructive in that. So w- we had to talk a lot about that. And he took the journey, uh, very much took the journey. He saw the show at the Watermill, and then he encouraged that it went into the West End, and it had a limited run in the West End. There, there are still, I think. Structurally, some issues and some uh, complexities about the piece. But I feel we got pretty near it. Um, I don't know if I would want to do it again to find out if I could get any nearer because I lived with it for two years of my life. And that's a long time with one story, and there are lots of stories to tell, you know. But it, it was a really good experience. It was wonderful to meet him. He was great to work with. Um, and interesting, you know, to take that kind of Broadway music and do it with 12 people playing, playing uh, instruments together. Fas- fascinating. But it was certainly quite a, a, an abstract version of the piece. You know, the man came into it. It was all done in a cage. So it was, it was not done in a kind of normal 
uh, I mean, it, that cage becomes a film studio, but it was it was very much an enclosed piece of storytelling, where uh, very much looking retrospectively at this woman who was no longer with him, and in fact, you saw her at the beginning, or almost in a funny enough in a Sweeney Todd way, I suppose, almost come back from the dead to to give him the opportunity to retell the story again. You say other stories to be told. You've mentioned uh, the Mahogany mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. I don't believe we've yet mentioned Barnum coming mm-hmm. up at the Old Globe in San Diego, mm-hmm. the Lucia de Lammermoor for the mm-hmm. Scottish Opera. What other stories are we looking forward to you telling? Well, those are the main ones. There are a couple that haven't been announced yet, so I won't publicly announce them today. But uh, Barnum has just newly been announced, and uh, I, I think I really, really love the score. And I loved the story when I first saw it in London years ago. I, it is going to be done using the same techniques. Some people have said to me, oh, are you doing it again? But then you'll get people saying, oh, well, of course, Barnum's the obvious one to do it with, which it is, you know, come follow the band. It's uh, completely obvious to do that. I think, interestingly, what I'm looking forward to exploring there, and I don't know how to do this yet, is that people's perception of what circus is today is different to the perception that it was when it was in 1980 when it was first done. So, uh We'll see. We'll see what we come out with at the other end. But the the main reason was I really liked the people at the Old Globe when I met them. Everybody tells me San Diego's a really nice place to go in June or July. And to be frank with you, that's as much as good reason of telling the story as any. Well, we've been talking about uh, musicals that have existed previously, like Company and Sweeney Todd and Fiddler and Mac and Mabel and all those. What about new work, original work? I'd, I would really like to do some new musical theatre work. Um, I'd kind of quite like it if some people would come up with the thought of writing writing for these techniques. I think that's really the next stage forward. Uh, I, I'd very, very much like that to happen. That takes a long time, as you know, and that's a long process to go through. But certainly... I, producers are beginning to encourage the possibility of that, okay. which is great. I, I am not at a point in my life where I want to go out and try and start raising money to do stuff like that myself. You know, I've done all that already. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so if I am excited about the possibility of finding, finding that. It's going to take time, you know. It took me 15 years to build it up in the UK. And I'm 54 now, was last week. And... I think I would like to give another 10 or 15 years to trying to really build it up here and see, and then uh, then go and lie down on my roof terrace in Italy, and that'll be quite enough. Have you been discussing this idea with any uh, existing composer? No, not as yet. No, I think I I thought it was best to get the second of these on and then (laughs) see, you know, the second's scarier than the first. The first time around you, uh, you have no, you know, I remember thinking, oh, well, if everybody hates it, it doesn't matter. I've had a really nice time being in New York. Mm. Then the second time around, the expectation, of course, rises. You know, you win a Tony Awards and everybody thinks that this is what's going to, you know, so, you know, do, do we let him continue to be successful or do we pull him down? I, whatever happens, happens. But it's certainly a more vulnerable thing at this point in time. And then and then we'll see what happens after that's on with the development of some other projects and new material. Well, company currently running on Broadway, Sweeney Todd running earlier. Mm-hmm. And we'll look forward to the future from John Doyle. Thank you very much for being Thank with us. Thank you. John on Downstage Center. Thanks, John. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you. <laughs>